Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you all for coming and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, please take just a moment to silence any noise-making devices. Today we're fortunate to have Luke Goodrich with us to discuss some of the themes in his new book, Free to Believe, The Battle Over Religious Liberty in America. To get us going, I want to pose a couple of questions to you to get your own uh, thinking started. One, should an evangelical family-owned business be penalized by the government if it declines to provide health insurance that includes coverage for drugs and devices that could cause an early abortion? Should Roman Catholic nuns be penalized by the government if they decline to offer health insurance that covers contraception? Should faith-based adoption and foster care agencies be shut down if they decline to place children with same-sex couples? Should bakers, florists, photographers be penalized if they decline to help celebrate same-sex weddings? And then lastly, should religious nonprofits who hold fast to their understanding of marriage as the union of husband and wife lose their nonprofit status, as we recently heard in a presidential debate? These are real and serious threats. And yet, as Luke will explain, some people are prone to exaggerate uh, these threats, to overstate these threats, and other people are inclined to ignore them, uh, to downplay them. Uh, for many people, religious liberty disputes are new issues. Uh, but the law firm where Luke works, Beckett, uh, they've been handling these questions for over 25 years. Uh, this isn't a new set of issues for them. In fact, uh, Beckett has been, or currently is, uh, litigating cases on each and every one of those uh, questions that I opened with. So let me pose three more questions. Can the government force a Muslim inmate to shave a half-inch beard that the inmate believes is required by God? Can the government deny a Jewish inmate kosher meals? Can a government zoning board deny a mosque the necessary permission to be built when it would have granted such permission to a church? These, too, are real and serious threats to religious liberty. And again, some are inclined to downplay or even deny that these are threats. Not only has Beckett represented uh, and won cases on each of those questions, uh, Luke himself uh, was part of the team that won a nine to nothing unanimous victory um, at the Supreme Court. Beckett's motto is that they protect religious freedom for all, from A to Z, from Anglicans to Zoroastrians. And they're right in that. Uh, so let me say a little bit more about Luke and then I'm gonna welcome him uh, to the podium. Luke is vice president and senior counsel at Beckett. Uh, where in addition to that 9-0 win in Holt v. Hobb, the Muslim inmate case, he's also helped uh, Beckett win victories in the, at the Supreme Court for the Little Sisters of the Poor and for Hobby Lobby. 
Luke's a graduate of Wheaton College and the University of Chicago's Law School. Uh, he then served as a law clerk to Michael McConnell, a religious liberty scholar who back then was a Tenth Circuit judge, now teaches at Stanford. And in addition to his legal practice at Beckett, Luke teaches advanced constitutional law at the University of Utah, Utah's Law School. Following Luke's lecture, we'll have time for your questions and his answers. So as he goes along today, be sure to keep a running list of any questions you want to post him. And then we'll have a reception afterwards with um, sandwiches. And you'll be able to buy a copy of Luke's book here. It'll be on sale for $25. Uh, but for now, please join me in welcoming Luke Goodrich to the podium. Ryan, thank you so much for that kind introduction. Thank you to Heritage for having me. And thank you to each one of you for being here. I'm so excited to share with you about my new book, Religious Freedom. Now, some of you uh, may be asking why, after so much ink has been spilled on religious freedom over the years, why do we need another book on religious freedom? I'd like to just tell you a little bit about why I've written this book and the need that I'm trying to meet. So this book actually began back in 2010. I was working at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. We're the only law firm in the country devoted exclusively to defending religious freedom and doing it for people of all faiths. I was living right over here on Capitol Hill, and my church on Capitol Hill was doing a summer sermon series on Christ and culture, and they asked me to preach a sermon on religious liberty. Now, I am not a pastor. I am a Christian. I had never preached a sermon before, and I had never even tried to think about what would a church want to hear or need to hear on religious freedom. My mind had been so focused solely on the legal questions and winning cases in court. But that forced me to start thinking about religious freedom a bit differently, not just as a legal matter, but also as a theological and a religious matter. So that was 2010. Uh, folks found that sermon to be very helpful. I just kind of filed it away and kept on uh, litigating these cases in court. Uh, the second big uh, motivator for writing this book was actually a gathering of Christian leaders in 2014. I was meeting with heads of denominations, heads of Christian colleges and universities, uh, and heads of major nonprofit religious social service providers. We were meeting in the shadow of the Obergefell decision as that was headed to the Supreme Court. And these leaders were gathered to discuss religious freedom and what was coming down the pike. And in that room, the sense of fear was palpable. These leaders were not at all apathetic about religious freedom, but they were deeply afraid of what was going to come. And in addition to fear, the other uh, dominating factor I observed was simply a lack of knowledge. These Christian leaders were on high alert, but they really had no idea legally what was coming. And they even hadn't thought very deeply uh, theologically or practically about how to prepare uh, their members for the types of conflicts that were ahead. And at that moment, it clicked for me. I realized I've been doing this work for over a decade. I've had the privilege of standing shoulder to shoulder with amazing clients, like the Little Sisters of the Poor, the Green family from Hobby Lobby, and coming into, them with, coming into court with them as they stared down the government, saying they wouldn't compromise their conscience. And I've learned a great deal from that, and I just felt called. I really need to take what I've learned over the last decade and put it in a form that will help these types of leaders 
understand why religious freedom matters, how it's threatened, and how to respond in a way that would protect it. So that's what I'm trying to do with my book, uh, Free to Believe. And I see three main needs that I'm trying to meet by writing this book. Uh, the first is an understanding of why religious freedom matters and where it comes from. Now, I grew up in a Christian tradition, and I am trying to speak uh, first to Christians in the book, although I think it is relevant to people of all faiths or no faith at all. But what I've observed among Christians as I've worked in this field uh, for over a decade now is that many Christians start thinking about religious freedom first and foremost as a legal, a political, or a constitutional issue. And the main concern is, how do we win these fights in a way that will protect us and our faith community and allow the gospel to flourish? Now, religious freedom is certainly a legal, a political, and a constitutional issue. Uh, but for Christians, uh, and I would include myself there, it is also deeper than that. It is, first and foremost, a biblical issue and a theological issue. And so I start the book with an attempt to call Christians back to the foundations of religious freedom that start before the U.S. Constitution was ever written down. Uh, there, are over, uh, there are dozens of stories in the Bible of religious freedom conflicts where people of faith were commanded to do things in violation of their conscience. Uh, and so there's much to learn from these stories. Uh, there's also uh, themes throughout scripture that are highly relevant to the question of religious liberty. I actually start in the book of Genesis, where uh, it tells that God created man and woman in his image. And part of being made in the image of God is uh, that we're made with a capacity for a relationship with God. We also see throughout scripture that God is pursuing relationship with humanity. He's pursuing relationship with Abraham, with the people of Israel. He ultimately sends his son to rescue all of us from sin. So we're made for this relationship with God, and, and we all have this thirst for a transcendent relationship with God. And God is pursuing relationship with us, but we also see in Scripture that God never coerces anyone into a relationship with him. Uh, that relationship that we're made for can only be entered into freely by an act of conscience and by an act of faith. And so if God never coerces anyone into a relationship with him, how much less should the government? And when the government interjects itself into the relationship between God and man and interjects its coercive power into that relationship, it is actually violating who we were created to be as human beings and committing an injustice. So as I lay out in the first part of the book, religious freedom is not just a political tool for protecting ourselves or maintaining a privileged place for Christianity in society. Rather, religious freedom is a basic issue of biblical justice rooted in the nature of God and the nature of man. And uh, much of the rest of the book is meant to tease out uh, what that means in practice. But uh, before I get there, uh, it's essential as Christians, you know, most of society does not buy the Bible as an authority. And we can't just go out into, into society and make biblical arguments and expect everyone to be persuaded by that. Uh, as Christians, we also need to be prepared to make 
publicly accessible arguments that aren't premised on divine revelation. And so I have a chapter devoted precisely to that. Uh, how can we, whether you're a Christian or not, how can we argue for religious freedom in the public square uh, that is accessible to all people? And very briefly, I, I offer three main arguments that I go into in detail. Uh, the first is an argument for how religious freedom benefits society. I tap into the language of the founders, how they argued that uh, our governmental system was made for the government, governance of a moral people, uh, that self-government is impossible without a moral people, and that religious freedom allows religion to flourish and thus generates the moral virtue that's necessary for self-government. Uh, religious freedom, by allowing religion to flourish, also produces a wide variety of social goods. Look at our educational system, our healthcare system, our social services. A religious freedom, by allowing religion to flourish, benefits society in all of those ways. Uh, secondly, I argue that religious freedom is actually the foundation for all of our other rights. Uh, the basic premise of religious freedom is that there is something within each one of us that the government is not allowed to touch, uh, rooted in our human nature, in our human dignity. And that principle is really the foundation for all other rights, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom from unlawful search and seizure, uh, and freedom from cruel and unusual punishment. And when the government uh, violates religious freedom, it's really knocking down a barrier, a firewall, that is protecting all of our other rights. And so uh, everyone in society should care about religious freedom for that reason as well. Those first two arguments, if you pay close attention though, uh, treat religious freedom as an instrumental good. Uh, we protect religious freedom because we want something else, like morality for, for self-government, or we want other rights. Uh, so the third argument I offer for religious freedom is that religious freedom is an intrinsic good worthy of protection in and of itself. And there's obviously a biblical argument for that, which I've touched on, but there's also purely philosophical arguments. You don't have to be religious at all to understand this. And in brief, in, in thumbnail sketch, the argument is that every human being, uh, every human being is born with a thirst for the true, the good, and the beautiful. If someone is out there and they're not seeking the true and the good and the beautiful, uh, we recognize them as having a mental problem. You know, it's, it's a pathology. Uh, we're all designed to seek the true and the good and the beautiful. We're all uh, created with reason. We have the capacity to think and to choose among competing truths, among competing goods. And uh, not only do we have reason, we also have conscience. We're born with this inner voice that chooses, urges us to choose good and reject evil. And we feel bound to obey that inner voice, and that is our conscience. And we find that when we're out there, we're seeking the true, the good, and the beautiful. Our reason is helping us to choose among them, and our inner voice is urging us to choose wisely. Uh, we all find we're not completely satisfied. We all thirst for a transcendent good, a transcendent truth, and transcendent beauty in a word uh, we thirst for God. Every human being is born with this religious impulse. And by its very nature, that religious impulse can't be acted upon under coercion. Uh, nobody can be coerced into embracing truth. Otherwise, it's not an authentic embrace of truth. And so by our very nature, we have this thirst 
can only be acted on without coercion. And so when the government coerces us in matters of transcendent truth, it's violating our human nature. It's violating a fundamental human right. And so religious freedom should be protected in and of itself as a fundamental human right. So that's the first part of the book. Why does religious freedom matter? Second part of the book addresses how is religious freedom threatened today? Uh, as I sat in that gathering of Christian leaders, they were worried. Some of them were afraid that pastors would be thrown in prison unless they uh, uh, consummated same-sex marriages. That's not a realistic threat. Uh, but other threats are very real, and many people are not at all aware of them. So my goal in the second part of the book is to draw on my experience with my colleagues at Beckett and lay out what are the main religious freedom threats today. And I identify five key areas uh, that are going to be the source of threats in the years to come. The first one I think of as uh, religious autonomy. And the threat is that, the, that fanatical devotion to the concept of anti-discrimination laws or anti-discrimination as a principle would end up undermining the ability of religious organizations to choose leaders and members who actually agree with their religious beliefs. And we see conflicts like this in multiple areas already. Uh, at Beckett, we're representing religious student groups on college campuses that have been derecognized or even banned from campus because they require their leaders to hold traditional Christian beliefs. And the university deems that to be a form of discrimination. We also see it in a number of uh, lawsuits. I'm representing the Archdiocese of Indianapolis right now. The Archdiocese is facing three lawsuits by Catholic educators at Catholic schools who uh, entered same-sex marriages in clear violation of their own written contracts and of Catholic teaching that they agreed to uphold. Uh, they were let go, and now they've sued the Archdiocese seeking millions of dollars in damages. And it's this idea that by choosing leaders and members who agree with your core religious beliefs, you're somehow discriminating. We don't, we don't hold that view with respect to any other mission-driven organization. Planned Parenthood is not deemed to be discriminating when it uh, refuses to hire pro-life workers. Uh, environmental groups are not deemed to be discriminating when they refuse to hire climate change deniers. And yet religious groups are deemed to be discriminating when they hire people who adhere to their core religious practices. And that's a major problem. Second major area of religious freedom threats today comes from the area of abortion and the idea that it's not enough for abortion to be legal under Roe versus Wade. It also has to be socially acceptable. And if you're a religious person and you're unwilling to participate in the facilitation of abortion, you're somehow denying health care, denying access to health care to women, and discriminating against women. The most prominent example of these threats come from the Hobby Lobby and Little Sisters of the Poor case, which I had the privilege of litigating at the Beckett Fund. These are cases where, during the Obama administration, the federal government issued a regulation requiring many, uh, many organizations both businesses and nonprofit religious organizations, to provide insurance coverage for all forms of contraception, including those that could destroy a fertilized human egg. Uh, 
uh, which for many religious people is an abortion. So the government is making a law that says you must help facilitate abortions in this way or you will be penalized millions of dollars uh, from the IRS. We took those cases to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, we won a great victory. Uh, and the basic principle here is not difficult. I talk in the book a fair amount about the Quakers and conscientious objection to military service. Uh, that was a hard-fought, uh, a hard-won fight at the time of the founding. Quakers were thrown in prison, they were beaten, and they were punished for refusing to take up arms in the colonial militias. Uh, but eventually, uh, the, our society realized that it wasn't gaining anything by punishing the Quakers and enshrined conscientious objection as a principle in our laws. And the same principle applies to in the area of abortion. Just as no conscientious objector should be forced to take human life in military service, uh, no one, no person of faith, should be forced to participate in an abortion in violation of his or her conscience. And we've won some major victories in this area, uh, but the fight is not over. Uh, there are several blue states that have sued the Trump administration and the Little Sisters of the Poor trying to overturn the victory that we won in the Supreme Court. And the Ninth Circuit actually ruled against the Little Sisters just a week ago, and we're currently appealing that to the U.S. Supreme Court. There are several states, California, Illinois, New York, they've gone beyond the contraception mandate and passed abortion mandates, requiring insurance plans throughout their states to cover not only uh, drugs that, that interfere with implantation of a fertilized egg, but actually cover late-term abortions. So these fights are ongoing, uh, and it's very important to be equipped to respond with wisdom and with persuasive legal arguments. Third major area, and I, I see my, my time is running, so a third major area is the rapid advance of gay rights and the challenge that that presents to religious freedom. And again, the, the idea is that it's no longer enough for same-sex marriage to be legal under the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision. Uh, the principle is that if you are standing in the way of same-sex couples getting the services they want, the goods they want, or even the approval that they want, you're somehow assaulting their dignity, you are a bigot, and you are worthy of punishment. And we see this conflict in two main areas. One, you see private lawsuits. These are where same-sex couples sue religious individuals or organizations. Uh, this can be uh, wedding vendors, like photographers, florists, and bakers, which are the most prominent example. Uh, these are lawsuits under public accommodations laws. You also see it in the area of employment. I mentioned the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. You have uh, LGBT individuals who are suing religious organizations for not employing them simply because they violate the core religious beliefs and practices of the organization. Uh, so those are private lawsuits. I think the even bigger threat in this area actually comes from what I think of as government penalties. And this is where the government doesn't wait for a lawsuit to be filed. Instead, the government adopts the view that it's against public policy to quote unquote discriminate based on sexual orientation or gender identity. And then the government affirmatively goes out and penalizes religious organizations or individuals because of their religious beliefs and practices. You see this in the area of licensing and accreditation. You see it in the area of government contracts and grants and loans where the government uh, denies contracts or grants to religious organizations because it deems them to be discriminating. 
You also see it as a threat to tax-exempt status. And Ryan mentioned earlier how Beta O'Rourke had argued that all churches across the country and religious colleges should be stripped of their tax-exempt status unless they support same-sex marriage. And that may sound crazy to a lot of religious audiences, but it really is the logical conclusion of the argument that many progressives are making in this area. And the argument is an analogy between race discrimination and sexual orientation discrimination. And it's attempt, an attempt to label traditional Christian beliefs about human sexuality as just as morally repugnant as racist beliefs that supported segregation. And then just as the government has power to stamp out racism in a variety of areas, it should have the same power to stamp out traditional religious beliefs about human sexuality. I go into this at length in the book, rebutting why that analogy fails as a matter of law, and how we can resolve these conflicts in a way that really does respect the dignity of both sides. Because at the end of the day, our country remains deeply divided over matters of human sexuality, over matters of life. And the question is, how is the government going to handle this deep division? Is it going to pick one side of the debate over human sexuality and crush everyone who dissents? Or is it going to find live and let live solutions that respect the dignity of both sides? Uh, and just one example of this right now, we're currently representing a Catholic organization that for over 100 years in the city of Philadelphia has been providing foster care services to needy children. They recruit families to provide loving homes for foster kids. And there's a foster care crisis in this country right now. And this Catholic organization has done the best job of any organization doing this ministry in Philadelphia for over 100 years. And yet in the midst of a foster care crisis, the city of Philadelphia just recently decided to shut down this Catholic ministry simply because they don't place children in the homes of same-sex couples. Now, no same-sex couple in over 100 years has ever come to the Catholic organization and asked for this type of assistance, so it's only a theoretical problem. And then if any couple did come, there are over a dozen other agencies that already provide that very service to same-sex couples and the Catholic group would simply refer them over there. So this is not a case at all where anyone is being stopped uh, from providing foster care. It's a case of the government labeling a particular set of beliefs repugnant and then discriminating against a Christian religious ministry in this area. And that sort of uh, aggressive behavior by the government is completely unnecessary. And the ones who suffer the most are really the children who are denied loving homes because of what Catholic social services could have done for them. Fourth major area of potential conflict comes for minority non-Christian religious organizations. And I'm, you know, again, the book is speaking in many ways to a Christian audience, and many Christians have done quite poorly in this area in thinking of religious freedom only as protection for us and our religious practices while being willing to deny it to others. I have had the privilege in multiple cases of representing uh, non-Christians, Muslims, Jews, Santeros, Sikhs. Uh, we really do represent everyone from Anglican to Zoroastrian, as Ryan said. 
And, and yet I still find among Christians and, and, and among others sometimes a resistance to defending religious freedom for people of other faiths. And so I offer in the book three main arguments for why, uh, especially uh, just as Christians, uh, we should care about religious freedom for people of other faiths. The first argument I call an argument from self-interest. Even if we only care about ourselves, it is actually smart and prudent to defend religious freedom for people of other faiths because the precedents that we set in those cases inevitably affect Christians later on. I see this in my cases all the time. One of the most prominent examples is the Hobby Lobby case. When we won that case in the Court of Appeals in the Tenth Circuit, the number one precedent that the Court of Appeals relied on in Hobby Lobby was a case involving a Muslim prisoner who wanted to maintain a halal diet while in prison. And the court said, just as the prison was forcing the Muslim inmate to choose between his faith and eating, the Obama administration is forcing Hobby Lobby to choose between their faith and multi-million dollar fines. Both of them were facing a substantial burden. In both cases, it was not justified. And so in both cases, the religious claimant won. So a religious freedom victory for a Muslim prisoner led directly to a religious freedom victory for Hobby Lobby. And the, the reverse is also true. Uh, in cases where uh, we've lost or have been hard-fought cases, often the precedents that undermine our legal arguments the most involve losses for non-Christians. The most famous example being Employment Division versus Smith, where the Supreme Court ruled that Oregon could make it a crime for Native Americans to celebrate the central sacrament of their faith, uh, smoking peyote. That loss for Native Americans has led to multiple losses for Christians and people of other faiths. So in a very real sense, our religious freedom is bound together. And by defending religious freedom for people of all faiths, we are, in a real sense, defending it for ourselves. That's just the argument from self-interest. A second argument I call the argument from evangelism. If you're a Christian, and you believe uh, in the truth of scripture and you want other people to embrace that truth, then defending religious freedom for people you disagree with actually opens the door for them to accept the truth. Now, we believe nobody comes to a saving faith through government coercion. So trying to shut down a mosque or stop someone from wearing a hijab or growing a beard doesn't really bring anyone closer to Christ. If anything, it would harden them against the faith. By contrast, by standing shoulder to shoulder with Muslims and people of other faiths, I've formed lifelong friendships, and I've been able to say, hey, I will stand for your freedom to believe what you believe, but you know what? I actually disagree with you, and let me show you what I think is a better way. And so Christians and other people of faiths, if you want an opportunity to persuade others of the truth of your faith, religious freedom gives you greater opportunity to do that. And then the third and final argument I offer for why we should care about religious freedom for people of other faiths is that argument from justice. Uh, you can make it biblically, which I talked about earlier, the basic issue of biblical justice. You can also make it philosophically, the idea that religious freedom is a fundamental human right rooted in our, in our nature as human beings. And it's worthy of protecting in and of its own, for its own sake, and it extends to people of all faiths. And we need to be conversant in that argument from justice because that is ultimately the strongest argument for defending religious freedom for people of all faiths. Uh, so we've covered uh, church autonomy and discrimination laws. We've covered abortion as a threat. 
gay rights as a threat, our attitude to minority faiths, non-Christian faiths. The fifth and final area of conflict is the, uh, what I just call the public square. These are conflicts over religious symbols on government property, uh, government funding for religious organizations, or uh, prayer in public schools, those types of conflicts. Where do we draw the line between church and state? And I don't have time to go into that at length, uh, but the basic argument in the book is that uh, we want the government neither to be uh, promoting one particular faith nor showing hostility toward faith, but treating faith as a natural and welcome part of the public square and creating as much room as possible for religion to flourish on its own merits. So that's, uh, that's the second part of the book. Where is religious freedom under threat? The third and final part of the book is what do we do about it? What type of action should we be taking to preserve religious freedom? And there are two main lines of argument I have here. Uh, one that is primarily for Christian audience, uh, one that is for everyone. So for a Christian audience, uh, I think when we ask the question, what do we do about religious freedom? Most Christians, their starting point is, how do we win? How do we win these cases, make sure our ministries are protected? And I go into court every day trying to win cases, so I'm not bashing winning. But as Christians, you know, much of Scripture is written to Christians who are facing suffer, suffering and persecution and denials of religious freedom, and we need to reacquaint ourselves uh, with the message of Scripture to the persecuted church. And the message is not, first and foremost, you must win. Uh, the message is to be like Christ. And there are principles we need to reacquaint ourselves with. You know, it's expecting suffering, rejoicing when it comes, uh, continuing to do good even when it hurts, uh, loving our enemies, praying for them, doing good to them, speaking kindly to them, uh, uh, seeking to live at peace with all men, not stoking conflict, uh, and caring for other Christians and people of other faiths when they are suffering for their faith. Uh, so the first part of that last uh, section of the book is just trying to, trying to introduce a little bit of a, a mindset change for how we as Christians enter into these conflicts. And I think the biggest mindset change is the fact that we often approach these conflicts from a place of fear. Uh, we are afraid of what's coming, afraid of losses, afraid of harm to our ministry and to our families. And uh, if you look at scripture, I, I love in, in the book of John where Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Now, Jesus was a realist. And in the book, I explain, we will have trouble when it comes to religious freedom. There are very real conflicts ahead. But in the very next breath, Jesus said, take heart, I have overcome the world. And we as Christians have a source of hope that rests not just on Supreme Court victories or the outcomes of elections, but in the risen person of Jesus Christ. And we need to enter into these conflicts from a place of hope rather than a place of fear. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, I also offer practical steps that all Americans can take to ensure that religious freedom remains protected for many years to come. Uh, whether you're a business owner, ministry leader, uh, person of the cloth, or just a person on the street, there are practical steps we can all take to defend religious freedom for all. Uh, I divide it up. Uh, I first look at threats that can come from within an organization. So there are a lot of religious organizations that really shoot themselves in the foot by failing to be clear about their religious mission, by failing to be careful about their employment practices, 
by failing to adequately assess their risks, and they're really setting themselves up for religious freedom conflicts that will be very painful. So I, I offer advice for how uh, they can better prepare themselves for threats that may come from within, from their own employees or from their, their own operations. Uh, secondly, I look at threats from the outside. Uh, and this, these are threats that may come from, you know, if you're a business owner, what types of lines of business are you in and where are you most likely to generate lawsuits? Or if you're a religious organization or a university, in what ways are you partnering with the government or dependent on government approval for your operations? And how can you assess those and reduce those risks? Uh, and then lastly, just uh, advice for just people on the street. How do we talk about religious freedom with our friends and neighbors and colleagues? How do we enter in the, into these conflicts in a way that is uh, joyful and peacemaking rather than antagonizing? How do we avoid uh, how do we avoid exaggeration that can turn people off of the entire issue of religious freedom? So just trying to equip uh, average, everyday Americans who are not lawyers, how do we promote religious freedom in our everyday lives? Uh, and just in closing, I, I do want to just underscore, you know, we at Beckett, we have a 90% win rate across all of our cases in the last 20 years, 25 years. Uh, we are also undefeated at the U.S. Supreme Court. And so uh, this book is not a book of gloom and doom. Look how bad everything is. Um, we have a great legal system with strong constitutional guarantees of religious freedom. And we have a long string of victories in the Supreme Court. Uh, so there are great reasons for hope just that if we look at our own status here in America. Uh, but again, our hope does not ultimately rest on winning Supreme Court cases or winning elections. If we are people of faith, if we are Christians, our hope rests in the person of Jesus Christ, and we need to enter into religious freedom conflicts with that in the forefront of our mind. Thank you. So that was outstanding. Um, and if you enjoyed that lecture, um, let me promote the book just for a minute, because the book is very uh, much in keeping with that lecture. It's not as if the lecture was great and the book is like all the leftover parts. The, every chapter of the book is just as good as the lecture you just book heard. Book is even better. Um, so we're going to have some time for um, questions and answers. Um, I want to kick things off with uh, a question of my own that I had while reading the book and while listening to uh, Luke uh, this afternoon. Um, how should people of faith think um, both about the religious liberty concerns, but also about being good stewards of the public square and of public policy and of public law. Um, because the biblical injunction here is to um, try to promote the common good uh, through public policy and through law, not just how to promote as much maximal freedom for my own religious beliefs. So um, from both a uh, 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 theological and natural law perspective, the primary injustice of abortion is not religious liberty violations, but the millions of human beings made in the image and likeness of God who are legally killed every year. Um, the primary injustice of Roe v. Wade, therefore, isn't um, a religious liberty consequence, but the actual injustice to children denied protection of law. Uh, primary injustice of something like Obergefell is not um, that it might shut down Catholic adoption agencies or bakers, florists, and photographers, but that the public law on marriage is now wrong, that the government is upholding a falsehood uh, about about human um, sexuality, about human marriage, and therefore um, promoting a false understanding of marriage and of parenting, et cetera, et cetera. 
And then lastly, and this is where I want you to kind of focus the remarks, there's a new question, and you didn't uh, have time today to speak about it, but you do discuss it in the book, and Beckett is representing clients right now on this issue, gender identity uh, questions. Uh, Catholic hospitals are currently being sued for not performing sex reassignment procedures. Um, but the religious liberty concerns strike me as being downstream from how should we think about gender identity, gender dysphoria, the appropriate medical care for gender dysphoria in the first place. Um, so the question is on you know all three of those issues, but particularly the one that still is a live issue, because to a certain extent, until the Supreme Court reconsiders Roe and Obergefell, those aren't as live as gender identity, where the court hasn't weighed in. How should people bring their biblically informed understanding of truth and of justice and the natural law philosophy informed account of truth and justice to these public issues, um, being concerned both about religious liberty and about the substantive issue of the dispute? So that's the question, and then I'm going to open it up to you guys. Yeah, such a, such a great question. And obviously, at Beckett, we focus exclusively on religious freedom, and that's the focus of my book. I think when there's an interplay between, say, abortion and religious freedom or marriage and religious freedom, there can be a, a tendency among Christians and, and other you know, people of other faiths to think of religious freedom primarily as a tool, almost like a rear guard action where we really care about the injustice of abortion or we really care about marriage and religious freedom is just a means for kind of fighting against some of the losses that we've experienced in those areas. And it sort of treats religious freedom as a political tool or a, a you know, culture war type tool uh, to secure other ends that we really hope for. Now, I uh, share some of those same ends when it comes to abortion or to marriage. Uh, but what I'm trying to bring out in the book, both biblically and philosophically, is that religious freedom is a good in and of itself, whether it's in, in tension with abortion and same-sex marriage, or it's in tension with local land use laws or the Endangered Species Act, you know, where I'm representing Native Americans who want to use eagle feathers as part of their religious practices. And so if we, if we understand religious freedom uh, not just as a tool for fighting a rearguard action, but as an issue of justice in and of itself, it enables us to enter into these conflicts on, on new grounds and also recognize that religious freedom extends to people of all faiths and, and care about it just as much for the Native American as for the Catholic Adoption and Foster Care Agency. Uh, on uh, transgender issues, as Ryan mentioned, this is a, a huge and emerging area of potential conflict. Uh, one of my cases right now, I'm representing Catholic hospitals and the Christian Medical and Dental Association because during the Obama administration, the Department of Health and Human Services issued a new regulation under Obamacare uh, prohibiting discrimination in health care based on gender identity. Now, that sounds good in practice, uh, in theory, but what it means in practice, the example that the government used in the regulation is if you're a Catholic, if you're a hospital and you would perform a hysterectomy for a woman with uterine cancer, then you must also perform a hysterectomy for a woman who wants to transition to living as a man and remove a perfectly healthy uterus. Uh, and for many uh, many doctors and hospitals, this is a deeply controversial procedure, uh, not only for religious reasons, but also for medical reasons. There is abundant evidence that these 
transgender medical procedures can be deeply harmful to patients. And so uh, we brought the lawsuit on behalf of these religious doctors and hospitals saying that it is unjust for the government to force them to participate in these procedures in violation of both their religious beliefs and their medical judgment. Uh, we recently got a victory in that case from the district court. Uh, the ACLU has intervened and they're uh, contemplating an appeal. But these are the types of issues that are going to play out uh, in the coming years. And it's essential, you know, as Christians or just as American citizens, to recognize what it means to engage in true compassion for people who are struggling with gender dysphoria. And especially when the medical evidence is in so much conflict here, there's a tremendous need for, uh, for caution and for freedom for doctors and hospitals, uh, particularly people of faith, to practice in accordance with their faith and their medical judgment. The floor is, floor is open. Yes, in the back. Oh, oh, sorry. Wait for a microphone because we're live streaming this. I should have uh, prefaced that. So make sure the question ends with a question mark and make sure you use a microphone because this is being live streamed and it'll be archived on YouTube. I just wonder, based on your experience, what kind of cases does the third of those three arguments for religious freedom that you made, where does, where does that get traction? You talked about the social utility, you talked about the moral grounding, and then you talked about just the intrinsic good. But I'm thinking like the, the, the adoption agency, for example, it's obvious the argument that these kids will be without homes. There's a social utility problem. It's less obvious why, how you could make the argument that somehow we, the adoption agency, are trying to pursue the transcendent good, and therefore you have to allow us to keep not placing with gay people. And so I wonder, in what kind of cases do you see, either politically or legally, this, this sort of transcendent good, intrinsic good argument up for religious liberty having real traction in American discourse today? Great question. I think there actually is uh, room, and I've actually seen some success making the argument for religious liberty as an intrinsic good, even when it is in potential conflict with gay rights. And there have been prominent uh, supporters of gay rights, uh, Doug Laycock uh, at UVA comes to mind, where if you think about it deeply enough, uh, LGBT individuals and religious individuals are really making parallel claims on society. LGBT individuals are saying, my sexual identity is so deeply a part of me that it is unjust for the government to punish me or restrict me from acting on this deepest part of my identity. And lo and behold, religious people are actually making the very same type of claim, that my right religious identity is so deeply intrinsic to who I am as a human being that the government should not punish me for who I love, God, or who I choose to relate with. Uh, and so I think you can get, get traction. And I, I think you know, you're not going to get traction with the human rights campaign on that argument. Uh, but for many Americans in the middle who are uneasy about the potential conflict between gay rights and religious liberty, I think most Americans, if you make that argument that, look, we have two different groups of people making fundamental claims about who they are as human beings. And what should the government do? Should it pick one side and just crush the other? Or should the government be trying to find ways to respect the deepest uh, identity of both sides? You can make a lot of traction that way. Um, I think the, the area where uh, the intrinsic good argument is maybe sort of the last leg to stand on, I find is, is sometimes in the prison context. So 
When I, when I was representing a Muslim prisoner who was serving a life sentence and wanted to grow a half-inch beard, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, there are some studies that show uh, prisoners who are allowed to ga- engage in religious practices in prison are less likely to engage in violence in prison and less likely to reoffend once they're released from prison. This guy was not getting released. Um, and, you know, the idea that if you take away religious freedom in prison, all of our other rights are going to collapse, you know, that doesn't carry much weight uh, either. So in, in prison cases, uh, you know, I think you really do have to go back to first principles and talk about the fact that, look, when prisoners uh, go in prison, they rightly lose many of their rights, uh, but they do not lose their humanity. And a fundamental aspect of their humanity is that religious impulse. And if we can maintain prison security, we're not talking about things that would compromise prison security. If you can fully maintain prison security and you can allow them to act on their God-given religious impulse, that is something we should do to respect them as human beings. Hi, my name is Tiffany. I'm a digital intern here at Heritage. Um, I want to ask also about gender identity. How should we address gender gender identity curriculum in schools? Because even where parents, um, specifically Christian or religious parents, have a choice in the matter as to if their child should learn about gender identity, it's at the cost of the student where their child in like fifth grade has to sit out in the hallway and read a different book than everybody else, where he's kind of being punished in that way. So how should we address that either as parents, as a state, the government? Yeah. So there's an interesting parallelism in the schools on this issue because, you know, 80 years ago, the schools were deeply religious, even the public schools. And there was a question about opt-outs for people who were not religious and you know, making them sit outside in the hallway is not deemed to be an acceptable opt-out when it comes, uh, when it comes to, for example, like release time courses. So in, in public schools right now, uh, it's constitutionally permissible to have release time where students are released from class, they go to a different site, they receive religious instruction, they can even get school credit for that. But you can't uh, make people who opt out of that just sit around and do nothing. Uh, there has to be equal opportunities. So I think that's, you know, that's a useful parallelism when it comes to uh, issues of gender identity in the public schools. I mean, if the public schools are going to go that route in the first place, you know, it's obviously not a granted that they should, uh, but if they do, there need to be very clear opt-outs for parents who fundamentally disagree with that, and there need to be alternatives for children to study and flourish uh, where they don't have to participate in that type of instruction. Hi, my name is James. I'm an intern with CFAM. And something I've always been curious about is how do we draw the line between religious freedom where it doesn't um, denigrate human life or marriage at the same time? So, for instance, I'm thinking of uh, the Mormon religion where they allow polygamy or uh, Islamic religions or even going far back to Aztec religions where they allowed child sacrifices. And uh, in most cases, people have a consciences decision to say, well, we can't allow relig- religions to sacrifice their own children. But then wouldn't that infringe on their religious freedom to express that? And then 
how do we draw that line where we can protect our own religious freedom to say, to have a conscientious objection to uh, withhold services to allow for uh, same-sex marriages, for instance? And I was wondering, how do you draw that distinction? Yeah. Excellent question. So I, I address at some length in the book, how do, we, um, how do we define the limits of religious freedom? Because every, every right has limits. Uh, the freedom of, freedom of speech doesn't allow you to uh, defame people or shout uh, fire in a crowded theater. Um, the right to bear arms doesn't allow you to carry a gun onto an airplane. So every right has limits. And in general, the limits on religious freedom come from the government's duty to protect other rights. So child sacrifice is kind of the quintessential example. You know, if a family says, I, my religion commands me to engage in child sacrifice, well, the, the government also has, to, has a duty to protect the life of the child. And that uh, the right of the child trumps religious freedom. Um, the hard cases come when the, the competing rights are less clear. Uh, an example is, would be like land use cases. What if you have a, a large church and you want to build a mega church in a quiet residential area? And the zoning board says, no, you can't build in the quiet residential area. You need to come into this commercial area where there will be you know, fewer problems of, of traffic and noise. Uh, but you know, where, the, where the limits on rights come from, uh, they don't come from the identity of the person who holds the rights. So we don't have different free speech limits for Republicans versus Democrats or different you know, freedom from search and seizure uh, based on you know, whether someone is white or someone is black. You know, the, the limits on the rights come from uh, the government's duty to protect other rights. When it comes to the specific issue of, of conflict between gay rights and religious liberty, uh, often the analogy is made to race discrimination. The idea that just as the government stamps out race discrimination in public accommodations or elsewhere, it should do the same when it comes to uh, religious objections to same-sex marriage. Now, on the analogy to race, I address in the book a uh, major difference between race discrimination and all other forms of discrimination. And it comes uh, partly from our history of race discrimination. We had hundreds of years of slavery based on race. We had a civil war fought over race. We had several constitutional amendments based on race. And we had a system of government-backed segregation based on race. And because of that, African Americans faced systematic barriers to full participation in the economic, social, and political life of the community. And the government was given powerful tools to root out that legacy of racism, tools that it has not been given for any other form of discrimination, whether based on sex, sex based on disability, based on age, uh, or any other grounds. Uh, we also see this reflected legally. For example, all 50 states ban race discrimination in employment. And there are no religious exemptions from that uh, in those statutes. By contrast, only 23 states banned employment discrimination based on sexual orientation discrimination. And all 23 states have a religious exemption. And this is based on the recognition that when a religious organization decides that its employees or leaders need to follow its religious beliefs, it's not actually doing something invidious. It's doing something that should be legally protected. Uh, we also see that difference uh, between race and sexual orientation in Obergefell itself. Uh, when the Supreme Court 
struck down the ban on interracial marriage in the case called Loving versus Virginia. It condemned the beliefs underlying um, the anti-misogyny laws uh, as invidious relics of race discrimination that should be stamped out. By contrast, when the Supreme Court struck down bans on same-sex marriage, it said that the belief in traditional marriage is rooted in uh, traditional, long-standing, and honorable beliefs that are held by many people and are worthy of protection. So the Supreme Court itself has recognized that race discrimination is treated differently from every other form of discrimination. And so as I explain in the book, there are ways you know, to protect the dignity of both sides. And, and in particular, when the government is labeling a business owner or a ministry a bigot and imposing hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines and shutting them down, you know, there's a very real dignitary harm uh, for the religious individual that far outweighs uh, any kind of harm that the same-sex couple might face. And so that shifts the calculus when it comes to gay rights and religious freedom. Yes, I just would like you to uh, see if there is any difference between the religious law and uh, natural law, if you can comment on it. Yeah, so the question is the difference between the religious law and the natural law, kind of th those two. Yeah, I think, uh, as, I, as I explain it in the book, there, there are two different arguments with two very different premises, but the beauty of it is they ultimately point to the same place. They point to religious freedom as being a fundamental right, and they point to it as extending to people of all faiths. And so I think uh, whether you're a Christian or you're not, uh, the beauty of the argument is, is that it's, it's something that can be accepted no matter your premises, and it's an argument that we can take into the public square and make on behalf of people of all faiths. Okay, please join me in thanking Luke Goodrich. Great job.